it's really, really good to, to be here today. If you were here last week, you might have realised that I wasn't here uh, last week. I'd been on holiday uh, last week, and I tend to take the opportunity to then go and visit some of the other churches, uh, particularly the relational mission churches around, uh, around in Kent. Uh, it's good we hear a lot about the churches when we meet up with other leaders, but it's really nice to actually be able to go and, and meet the people and to spend some time there. So last week, uh, I was actually over with City Church in Whitstable, uh, worshipping with them, able to spend the morning with them. I had a really good good time. It was good for me to be able to go and just to be able to, to worship and, uh, and to enjoy that time there. But I really did miss being here. There's nothing like being with your own family. So uh, it, it did me good to go, but I'm really grateful to, to be here today, to be able to worship together. Uh, I feel really privileged to be able to come and to speak to you today. As Mike said, we're going to be continuing our series uh, called A Worshipping Community. And we're, through this series, we're looking at a number of the Psalms. And if you've got your Bible with you, if you can turn to Psalm 34, uh, we'll come up on the screen as well. So if you haven't got a Bible with you, that's absolutely Fine, you can follow along up there. Uh, but just as you're finding your way there, just to, to really explain a little bit of where this series has come out of and, and what our heart is behind it. Uh, if you were here a, f- a few weeks ago, just before we, we launched into our week of prayer, we did sort of a one-off sermon uh, that we called a worshipping community. And really it was about just thinking about what it is to be uh, a worshipping community and the kind of people that God has called us to as we went into as we stepped into the week of prayer and that sermon that that I did was based around 1 Thessalonians 5 16 to 22 particularly picking up on Paul's invitation to to be a people who uh, rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances they were really the, the three major things that he was calling the church to and also about not quenching the spirit uh, but having reflected on that and having, having spent some time thinking about where we were going to go next, actually, for, for Mike and myself, we felt we wanted to extend that a little bit and extend the series and to think a little bit more about what it is to be a worshipping community, what it looks like for us to be that kind of a people together. What does it look like to be a people that rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances? How do we do that? That's the call that's been given to us, but how do we actually go about that and as we considered this we felt actually spending a number of weeks in the Psalms would be a really fruitful place for us to go because if you look at the Psalms the people uh, who, who were involved in, in, uh, in, in producing the Psalms who uh, the, these songs came out of we see them in, in a really wide range of circumstances don't we in some very fruitful seasons but also in some very desperate situations and very dangerous situations but in the midst of it we get a real insight into the character of God but not only into the character of God but also into his relationship with his people and so actually what we're going to be doing uh, over this series we're going to be looking initially at six psalms Uh, Mike started last week and hopefully what we'll see is that we'll be able to focus on aspects of God's character that the, that the psalmist revealed to us. But then because of God's character, what is our response to be? What response are we to make to who God is? And we're going to be thinking then about what these psalms teach us about what it is to be a worshipping community. Now, as I say, Mike started 
last week, he started the series, and he started in Psalm 1, uh, and I think as he said last week, it's not just because it's the first one, Don't, maybe you were panicking and thinking we were going to start from one and work all our way through, uh, we're not going to be doing that, but actually Psalm 1 was a really good place to start because really it's sort of the gateway into the Psalms, it explains a little bit, actually this is what the, the Psalms purpose is, it's to help us to be a people who live righteous lives. Uh, so that's what Mike was sharing last week, and so we're going to be looking at Psalm 34 today. So let's read Psalm 34. This is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. David says this, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So, right at the very start of this psalm, it's almost like there's a bit of a title. You see, before we kind of get into what David was saying, there's this title which says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And really, we need to understand what this means in order to understand the context that David was speaking into. Because it's really helpful for us, isn't it, to understand the context of what we're reading in Scripture, for us to understand where it's come from. And what that's talking about, it's talking about where David was on the run from King Saul. Okay, so David, fearing his life was in danger, and he's on the run from King Saul, and uh, he ends up, he he finds himself in Philistine territory. Now, the Philistines were, were the enemies. Of the Israelites. And if you're familiar at all with uh, the story of David, you'll know that David actually killed Goliath, who was the Philistines kind of, he was their their man, he was the champion warrior. No one expected David to defeat him, but David did. Uh, And what's happened, uh, just before David enters into Philistine territory, he actually takes Goliath's sword and takes it with him. So now David is in Philistine territory holding the sword of the Philistine champion that he had defeated. It doesn't seem like the smartest of moves, necessarily, when we're looking at it. Like, actually, it's a bit of a strange decision to make. But he finds himself there, and he finds himself called before the king. And when he's there, some of the king's servants 
They, they, they recognise who he is. And they start saying among themselves, they're like, actually, this is, this is David. This is the one that they sing songs about. This is kind of their, their mighty champion, David. And as David hears this, he starts to fear for his life. Understandably, he stood before the king in enemy territory. People are saying, look, this is, this is David, who the Israelites sing these songs about. And he's terrified for his life. And we can read about this in 1 Samuel 21. And what David does, uh, we're told that he changes his behavior. He actually feigns madness. So he behaves in such a way that the king thinks that he's mad. And as the king sees this, he sends David away. He says, why have you brought this man to me? And he sends him away. And David then flees and escapes from that place. So he's been delivered from potentially, not potentially, it was a life threatening situation where he was in absolute danger and peril and he's been delivered from that and this psalm comes out of that so hopefully in us understanding where he's come from it just helps us to understand a little bit of what David was thinking or where and where he was coming from now there's a lot in this psalm Uh, there's a lot we could focus on focus on but there's this morning I feel like there, there are four things really that I want to draw our attention to there are two invitations and there are two what I'm going to call two comforts in there as well. So really we've got two comforts that come out of God's character and who he is and where we find comfort in those things. But then there's also two invitations in terms of, okay, so what's then our response to God in these moments? Does that make sense? So we're going to be looking at two invitations and two comforts. And the first invitation that David extends to us is this. It's an invitation to worship. See, from the very start of this psalm, from verse 1 of this psalm, David sets out his stool. He's saying, this is what I am going to do. This is what I'm going to give myself to doing. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He's saying, this is what I'm going to give myself to. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to speak out praise to him and if you were here when we were looking at the 1 Thessalonians passage what we're seeing here there's a real similarity with what Paul was calling the church to remember Paul's calling the church to be those that rejoice always uh, pray in all circumstances uh, and um, what have I missed there was something else give thanks give thanks thanks in all circumstances pray without ceasing that was it Uh, and rejoice always and actually can't we see that that's what David's doing here He's saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. It's not just about these momentary times. It's actually he's going to live with this attitude of praise and thanksgiving and worship to God at all times. But it's an attitude of worship that's not just in his heart, but it's in his mouth also. Did you notice that? It's something that's to be expressed. It's something that's to be Declared. There's something about, yes, it's right to have a, a, a worshipful heart that we live with an attitude of worship, but it's completely appropriate and, and absolutely necessary that we verbalize our praise as well. That there's something that comes from our mouth. Charles Spurgeon, when he was writing on this, he says that God deserves blessing with the heart and extolling with the mouth. You put it like this, he said, good thoughts in the closet and good words in the world. So there is, it's about having an attitude of worship in our hearts, but it's also about, let's make these praises known. Let's express them. Let's verbalise them. And this is what David is saying he's going to do. He's saying, I'm going to live my life like this. I'm going to make much of God. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to bless him. 
Not just at moments, but it's going to be the state I'm living in. I'm going to live ready to praise and to worship. And then the invitation comes. Because David says, this is what I'm going to do. Won't you join with me? Doesn't he? In verse 3, he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He's calling God's people to join in with him. He's saying, I don't, this isn't just about me doing this by myself. Won't you join me in this? Won't you join me in this lifestyle of worship? Won't you join me in this attitude of praise? And he says, We're to magnify the Lord with me. There's a couple of ways that we can understand magnifying or magnification. And I've found John Piper, uh, an article that he wrote on this, really helpful. And he makes a distinction between two kinds of magnifying. We can magnify in terms of if we were to look through a microscope, couldn't we? And when we look through a microscope, what happens is that we're making a small thing look bigger than it is. Okay? So we can do that. We can Something that's small, we can make it look bigger than it is by magnifying. Or we can do the sort of magnifying that comes with a telescope where we're making a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. So there's two different ways that we can understand it. And what David is calling us to here, and he calls us to it elsewhere in the Psalms as well, about magnifying God. Essentially he's saying this, he's saying, let's make God begin to look as big as he really is. Did you know that? That as you praise, as you bless God, as you give him thanks, as you exalt him, what you're doing is you're magnifying him. You're beginning to make God look as big as he really is. Isn't that wonderful? Did you know that your praise does that? Your praise. I'm not just, this, there's a corporate sense of it, but you. As you worship, as you praise him, as you give him thanks, you're making God begin to look as big as he really is. Isn't that wonderful? See, as we bless the Lord, what that means is to speak good words about him. As we boast in him, as David says that he does, he says, he's like, I'm not going to boast in anything of me. Actually, what we'll notice as we look through this psalm, yes, he, he escaped, didn't he, and, and came to safety. Does he mention himself in this at all? No, it's all about God. It's all about what God has done for him. So he's saying, I'm going to boast in God. And when we boast in God, when we boast about his person, his works, his character, his covenants, his promises... As we verbalise what happening, what's happening in our hearts, we make God begin to look as big as he really is. David was a man who wanted to make much of God. He wanted to make God known. This wasn't just about his private life. He's not, in my quiet times, I'm going to praise and worship God. He's like, actually, I want to magnify God. I want people to see just how big he really is. To be able to understand more about who he is. And David wanted to make much of God, and he wants us to make much of God too. And this invitation is a corporate one. Read again, verse 3. He says, I'll magnify the Lord with me and come let us exalt his name together. This is a call for us corporately. This is something that we should be doing as a church. As a church, we should live with that culture or that attitude of worship where we're, it's almost like it's ready on the tip of our tongue, ready to come and praise, ready to come and give thanks, ready to come and pray. I think this is why, why the, the whole verbalising of our worship is so important. Doesn't it do us good when we're together and we hear other people praising God? And we hear other people give, sharing stories about what God has done. And we hear other people praying out thanks and response to God. Are we around other people when they're praying for God to come and move in their life and in their situation? You see, a, 
is, is why it's so important because a community that worships magnifies God. And us as a church, as we gather to worship, we magnify God. I want us to consider. I know we worship. I know we do. But consider if we accepted David's invitation. What potential do we have to make God known to one another, but also to the world? It's a wonderful thing to consider. Actually, as we come to worship and we verbalise our worship together, think of the potential there is to make God known among us. Now, this praise and invitation that we see from David, it's not come from a comfortable place. This is actually quite remarkable. When we think about the situation that David was in, and we think about the things he's going to go on to say, he starts off saying, I'm going to praise, I'm going to give my life to worship in, I'm going to be ready with, with words of praise on my tongue at all times. But where's he come from? He's come from a place of real suffering and real distress. This hasn't come from a comfortable place. And David is sharing his experience. He's saying, uh, he, he's saying this was my experience. And he's using his suffering as an encouragement. He's not boasting about his, in the situation he was in, he's not boasting about how good an actor he was, which is why he, was, he found some safety. He's not boasting about his own genius idea that he had in order to flee and to escape, but he's, in, he's boasting entirely in God. And he's able to do that from a place of suffering and not from a place of comfort, which is a really remarkable thing. So he gives us this invitation to worship. The second invitation we have is this. It's an invitation to experience God's goodness. That's what he's inviting us into. An invitation to experience God's goodness. Now maybe you know people like this. Maybe you're one of these people yourself. But I've realised and I've noticed that if sharing a meal, uh, sometimes when the dessert comes out and it's offered around, there are some people who say, I'll just have a taste. Not a big piece. I don't want a big piece. I'll just have a little taste of that's not me, okay? Our, um, our neighbour on his car, he's got a sticker that says, go big or go home. That's my attitude when it comes to pudding, right? I'm either going for it or I'm not. But there are some people that say, actually, I just, want, I just have a little taster. I can't manage the whole thing, but I just want a little taste. You know, it, it, it looks good. Do you know what? Other people might say that it actually looks good, but there's only one way to know, isn't there? Whether it actually is good. Now, David understood this as he speaks about the goodness of God. He speaks about the goodness of God. I found Andrew Wilson really helpful on this. He says, when we talk about, if we say God is good, that there's a few ways that we could approach it. The first thing is this, is that we can look at it as it's identifying a property of God. So you say God is good. There's many things that God is, but one of those things is good. Okay, so when we say God is good, we're saying this is a property of God. He's good. The second thing is that when we say God is good, it could be a definition of God. So we're, we're saying, anywhere you find goodness, you will by definition have God, and vice versa. Wherever you have God, you will find goodness. So it could be either two of those things. Goodness as a property, or goodness as a definition of God. But then he also goes on to, to say that actually, not only is it a property, not only is it a definition, but God's goodness is also to be experienced. God's goodness is to be experienced. So going back to the dessert thing, it might look good. Other people might tell you that it's good, but there's only one way you're going to know for yourself. 
Because someone else's opinion is just, it's their subjective opinion, isn't it? But actually, you need to decide whether you're going to taste for yourself. And so, uh, we, um, so actually, God's goodness, what David is saying is that God's goodness is also to be experienced. We may know that God is good in some theoretical, maybe even some sort of abstract way. We might say, I know that God is good, but what use is that if we never experience his goodness? David has experienced God's goodness. Even in the situation that he found himself in, in the psalm, he tells us, he says that God delivered me. He says how God provided for him. He says how God heard him when he cried. He's saying, God has been so good to me. This is my experience, he's saying, now try for yourself. That's what he's saying in verse 8. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We all personally, personally need to experience God's goodness. But have you ever thought, when we know that we're called to go and make disciples, don't we? We know that we're told to, to go and share the gospel with people. We want to see people coming into God's family. But have you ever thought about what we're inviting people into? It's not just about teaching them a certain way of life. It's not just about laying out these, that actually this is kind of the basic information that you need to know. There is a need for that. People need to understand what the gospel is. But the gospel is something not just to be learned, it's something to be experienced as well. You're inviting people into a a life-changing experience, something for them to encounter. See, Jesus taught a lot, didn't he? He taught about the kingdom of God. He taught about the nature of God and the character of God. He taught about who he was and what he'd come to do. He talked about who his people were meant to be. But through his death and resurrection, he also makes a way for us to experience God. To be restored, to be brought into relationship with God. In John 17, Jesus, he's praying to God and he's speaking about eternal life. And he says that eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. Relationships are to be experienced, aren't they? It's not just about what you know. It's about what experiences you have. Then in Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, uh, he's saying, he he writes this from verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So what he's saying, he's like, I know you're saved. On the basis of the faith that you have in Jesus, I know that you're saved. Okay, so I know you've been brought into a relationship with God. But then what he's saying, he's saying, my prayer is this. My prayer is that God would grant you a deeper experiential knowledge of him. That there's something about the experience of God that we can grow into, that we can grow, grow deeper into. And that was Paul's, was Paul's prayer for the church. It's like, I want you to experience more of God. As well. I remember watching MasterChef a few years ago, and you know, MasterChef, they, they, they have to taste the food, don't they, to decide how well people have done. Uh, 
and they often, it frustrates me because they eat a little bit and then they leave. Loads and, uh, I understand because they've got to get through loads of, loads of things. But there was one, it was a few years ago now, um, and I can't remember which judge it was, but they tasted it and then they just kept eating. And they kept eating it and they kept eating it and someone asked them what they were doing and they said, I'm no longer tasting, now I'm eating. He's like, something's changed. I've done my tasting and now I'm moving on. There's a very, it's a very different different thing from tasting to then eating. You see, when you're eating it, there's a difference in that when you're eating it, something, it sustains, it nourishes, it, it grows in a way that just tasting doesn't. And the reason I'm saying this is because I feel like when David is inviting us to taste and see that the Lord is good, it, tasting more than just a casual sampling. Actually, it's something that should draw us deeper into God. It's something that should sustain us. It's something that should bring growth. Does that make sense? That we don't just want to stay on the periphery of just, oh, that was just a nice little taste and dipping in from time to time, but actually tasting and seeing that God is good should draw us deeper into him. That these should be the things that sustain us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter writes, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. So it's this sense of, okay, so you've tasted that the Lord is good and you know he's good. Because of that, actually now you need to really give yourself. I think in this circumstance, it's about giving yourself to the word, feeding on that which is going to build you up and grow you. But it's that sense, again, it's actually this invitation to experience God's goodness. Is it just so that we stay on the periphery and stay on the edge of things, but actually in order that we enter deeper in, to not just into understanding, but deeper into experiencing God and growing in our relationship with him. So we've got these two invitations. We've got an invitation to worship and an invitation to experience God's goodness. I want us to think about two comforts that David shares with us as well. And the first one is this, is that the righteous are seen and heard by God. It says that in verse 15. He says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear, ears toward their cry. Now at this point, we're kind of entering into some verses that contrast the righteous and the wicked. If you were here last week, I think quite a bit of the, the, the verses that Mike had last week talk a lot about actually this is the, living the way of the righteous or living the way of the wicked. And David picks up on this again. So we need to understand then if he's talking about what's the difference then between the righteous and the wicked. And righteousness really is about, it's about being right before God. It's about having right standing before God. And so when David's writing here and talking about the righteous, he's saying that those who have, the, who, those who have right standing before God. Now I spoke a moment ago about how Jesus makes a way for us to know God. I want to pick up on some words of Paul in Philippians, which take us a little further in this. Philippians chapter 3, verse, from verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So essentially what, um, what Paul is saying here, he's saying, I'm, 
Because of what Christ has done for me, because what Christ has done, I've been brought back, I can know him, I've been brought back into that relationship, I can know him, and I can know the Father. But the only reason I can do this is because the righteousness of Jesus, or the right standing that he had in front of God, has now been given to me. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of the work that Jesus has done. Which means that his righteousness is credited to me. You see, in Jesus, our standing before God has changed. So now when David is speaking about the righteous, we can, if, we are, if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we're walking with him, we can confidently hold on to this word that David has given us. He's saying that, uh, that the righteous are seen and heard by God. So if we're found in Christ, we can take hold of this and we can know, beloved, you are seen and heard by God. See, David, in earlier verses, he's spoken about seeking God. He's spoken about looking to him, how God has heard him and saved him out of our troubles. And now he's inviting us to experience it too. I would think, I might be wrong, but I would think that most of us here, if not all of us here, have had times in our life where we felt, in, in whatever circumstances and in whatever setting you want to think of, where we felt overlooked or unseen, maybe we felt unheard or ignored, lonely, isolated or unimportant. I know I've definitely had times in my life where I've felt like that. Maybe that's how you're feeling right now, as you're sat here today. Maybe that's how you feel. But... God's eyes are on you. He sees you. His ears are towards you and he's ready to hear you. Charles Spurgeon, who I mentioned earlier, he says this about these verses. He says of the righteous, he says that they are so dear to him that he cannot take his eyes off of them. He watches each one of them as carefully and intently as if they were the only one, if there were only that one creature in the universe. And he goes on to say, if slighted by all others, they are not neglected by him. Isn't that good news? But that's why I've, I've turned this as a comfort, but isn't that a comfort? To know even if you're in a place of feeling completely unseen, feeling completely alone, feeling like no one sees you or understands or hears the cry of your heart. Actually, even if you feel slighted by everyone else, you're not neglected by God. Because the righteous are seen and heard by him. David knew what it was to be seen and heard by God. He knew what it was for God to hear his cry and to act. And David wants us to experience that as well. He wants us to be confident that we too are seen. That we too are heard. I just want to move on to the, the last point I had about comfort. And the last comfort is this. Is that the righteous will face many troubles. But, the righteous will face many troubles, but, throughout scripture we're warned time and time again to, to expect tribulation. We're warned time and time again that we will face trouble. And again in verse 19, this is what David tells us. He says that many are the afflictions of the righteous. So he's, he's telling us actually trouble is to be expected. You might be sitting there thinking, Sam, you said that this was a comfort. 
And the comfort comes in the next word. It says, the righteous, uh, the, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Or out of, yeah, out of them all. That's where the comfort is. The righteous, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He's saying this, he's saying there will be an end to these afflictions. There will be an end to these troubles. And I think that we're meant to look beyond the immediate when we're trying to understand what David is saying here. That we look beyond the immediate. The reason I say this is it's come out of uh, another article I was reading by Kathy Keller. And really it was her, med- her meditation on this psalm. She'd been in a really hard place herself, a lot of suffering with her, with her health, going through an awful lot. And she had committed to, to memorising this psalm. That's what she wanted to do, to memorise it. And as she was doing it, she was really pondering and meditating on the words here. And she says when she came to these verses in the psalms, it caused her to stop and to think. Because it might seem that when you read that through many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all, keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. It might be almost just like this sweeping blanket statement that God's just going to almost just make every situation right in that moment. But for her, she went back to, to John's gospel account where Jesus is on the cross. And there's a point where Jesus is on the cross and the soldiers uh, talk about whether to break his legs in order to make him die quicker. Uh, but actually they, they refrain from, from doing it because Jesus has already died. And she picks up on the, in John 19.36 it says, so John 19, so in John's gospel account of what was going on, so the soldiers have refrained from breaking Jesus' legs. And it then says, these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's what we've just read in Psalm, isn't it? So this is what God has spoken <coughs> here. We're seeing it being worked out with Jesus on the cross. And we can look at it and we can say, okay, Jesus' bones weren't broken, but he was crucified. He did suffer. He was put to death. He experienced pain. He experienced agony. But God protected Jesus past the grave because he was raised from the dead, wasn't he? So God did protect him and he brought him through. I want us to go back to those verses in Philippians that we looked at just a moment ago. I want to pick up from where I left off. So I'd said, um, not having any righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying there, he's saying, because Jesus was raised from the dead, Because Jesus lives, we too will live. So as God protected Jesus past the grave, as he raised him from the dead, because that happened to Jesus, we can be absolutely confident and assured that that will happen to us too. Which means that we can face tomorrow with confidence. Which means that we can face tomorrow with hope. Because it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us too. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. This is what John saw in his vision of what will happen when Jesus comes back. It says, this is what he saw. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. For those of us who are in Jesus, that's the promise that we have. In whatever circumstances we're in. Highs or lows. Whether we're walking through that desert place whether we're walking through seasons of great celebration, we've all got that common promise to look forward to. Because Jesus was raised, because he lives, we too will live. Because we have that promise, we can face tomorrow with confidence and with hope. I just want to finish with this, and just read what Kathy Keller had written, and the conclusion that she had come to. She said that while God may not protect you from everything, from every bad thing that might, that, that might, has or could have. Let me start again. While God may not protect you from every bad thing that might, has or could happen to you, ultimately, through resurrection, you are safe. I will walk through death and come out on the other side, fully healed, restored, saved and protected. God does not protect us from things that harm us. He protects us as we go through them to the other side of the resurrection where our real hopes and real happiness lie. And I think when David is speaking about actually the Lord is going to deliver the righteous, I think that's what he's speaking at as we look beyond the immediate and as we hold on to the promises of God for his people. And just as God protected Jesus past the grave, just as Jesus was raised from the dead. That is true of us also, as we live with our lives, uh, with our faith and trust in Jesus. So we've seen today, there was, a lot, there was a lot there, there was actually a lot more in there that we could have gone into. I thought I'd narrowed it down quite a bit. But with what David was writing, Just to remind us, we see two invitations and we see two comforts. We see an invitation to worship. That call for us to gather corporately, to make much of God, to be those who magnify him. There's also the invitation to experience God's goodness for ourselves. Jesus has made a way for us to be able to do that. And then two comforts. The first one, that the righteous are seen and heard by God. Even if you feel like no one else sees you, even if you feel completely isolated, and alone, even if you feel that no one else is hearing your cries, know that God does and God will act. And then the final comfort that the righteous will face many troubles, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. May I pray for us?